Expression is one of the most powerful tools we have. A voice, a pen, a keyboard. The real change which must give to people throughout the world their human rights must come about in the hearts of people. We must want our fellow human beings to have rights and freedoms which give them dignity. Article 19 is the voice in the room. Hello everyone, I'm Kristen Waitaki. Tamman content contributor and accessibility specialist, and I am hosting our conversation today. About once a month, Tamman employees to get together for a lunch and learn to talk about anything in the disability culture space, usually a book. And we felt that it was very appropriate after Embry Owen's blog entry about all of the contributions from Judith Human to talk about her memoir and her life as a disability activist. Article 19 is a call for others to join us in a bigger conversation around the ADA, digital accessibility, and access to information. At Tamman, we are working to build the inclusive web every day, but to do that, we need all of us working together and learning together. Thank you so much for listening to Article 19, and let's get to today's conversation. Kristen, there is quite a bit to talk about when it comes to the life of Judy Human, and this won't be the first time that Tamman has recognized her life. We do have a remembrance on our website, tamaninc.com slash learn. You can do a search for Judith or Human, H-E-U-M-A-N-N. But let me turn it over to you to do, you know, an introduction of who she was and kind of start our conversation. Thank you, Marty. Thanks for everyone who could make it today, and thanks to everyone on the podcast who is listening now. And the ADA was passed with a lot of struggle to get it passed, and actually possibly even more struggle for the Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And I think that a lot of times we forget just how far we've come. And at Tamman, we're always talking about where we have to go and what still has to be done, and we should always. But this is a little bit of a history book talk, and I just actually want to start with the end because why not but I just kind of want to appreciate the ADA moment so this is how Judith Human disability rights activist described the ADA July 26th 1990 was a glorious summer day in Washington DC the trees were lush the sun was out and the sky was blue 3,000 people were gathered on the south lawn of the White House in front, standing on a platform, was President George H.W. Bush, with Justin Dart at his side. As President Bush began to speak, a hush fell on the enormous crowd. Let the shameful wall of exclusion finally come tumbling down, he said, and he sat down at a desk and signed the Americans with Disabilities Act into law. Our time had come. After nearly 20 years of protesting from one coast to the other under five presidents, Republican and Democratic, we had created what I believe to be the strongest, most comprehensive civil rights legislation for disability in the world. I was 41 years old, and finally, I was an equal citizen. I mean, just to sit with that is pretty amazing. When I think about the White House proclamation, for instance, which was a very worthy proclamation, but also mostly talked about the politicians and less about the people. And so this was a real from the people moment of reading about the ADA. My memory of the ADA as a blind woman 
came two years later, maybe three, two and a half. When President Clinton was inaugurated, I was in sixth grade, fifth grade, maybe fifth grade. And we were watching it, and I remember somebody was extolling President Bush's virtues on the way out. And one of the things that was mentioned was that he signed the ADA into law. And some kid was like, oh, for people like you, you know, to me. And I just remember feeling terribly ashamed and like, you know, oh my God, I didn't even know what the ADA was or like what it had done or what things were like before. I was just like, oh my God, it was just for weirdos like me. And I remember like just feeling kind of shame. And so 33 years later, I'm reading about it like, wow, this is pretty cool legislation that got passed. So I think I'm always newly appreciating it. But I also wasn't aware of what people had to go through before. So it's really interesting to read a book from somebody who remembers literally what it was like not to go to school, what it was like not to be allowed to work, you know, what it's like to be stuck outside of a building because you can't literally get in the building. And it puts everything in a very humbling perspective for me. So I would love to turn it over to all of you. I don't even know where to start, but do any of you have any thoughts about the ADA or where we are, where we're going, what's happening? Yeah, this is Marty. I'll jump in as folks are gathering some of their thoughts just on the first part. And that is that certainly in my lifetime, it's not just the most important civil rights legislation for people with disabilities, but I think it's the most important civil rights legislation in my lifetime. I was not born in the 60s, (laughs) so obviously that is pretty important too. And we're still building on it. We're still improving it the three decades plus later, which is remarkable. And I think that that is typical for, you know, the United States, but it's also frustrating and I'm impatient. (laughs) You know, I want more, and especially from that digital accessibility standpoint and from the employment standpoint, which I think are the two areas where I think the ADA really hasn't made progress. But so as not to focus too much on the negative on this day, I do think that there is something to celebrate when it comes to the overwhelming transformation that has happened in buildings and the overwhelming transformation that has happened in our physical spaces. I think that is really worth celebrating. And in 30 years to transform so much, whether it's ramps or buttons on doors or the bathrooms, et cetera, there's so much to celebrate there. 30 years is actually a short period of time when you come to physical spaces. So I I think that's exciting for sure. I would love to hear from other folks as well. And despite my very negative education memory attached to the ADA, I think education in general has come a long, long way since it was passed. Yes. Great point. Marcus? In the beginning of the book, they were talking about the stigma of disability. And with the polio epidemic happening, there were... A lot of other children and even adults that were a lot like Judith who caught polio and then had to spend three months in an iron lung. And one of the things that Judith's family encountered was that she was going to have to go into an institution, which is what they did with many children and adults at that time. And they even discouraged their parents from visiting the children when they were in the institutions. And it was spun as these kids are a social and physical and economic burden on their families. 
and made it feel as if the uh, family had done something wrong. It was kind of hard to wrap your head around that and reading that, and it was very upsetting. I'm glad we've come a long way from that, but it gives an explanation of how we got to the ADA and why we got to the ADA because of how we were uh, treating people that were different than us and stigmatizing people that were different than the quote-unquote norm. And again, as it's come up in other uh, book talks, it seems very much like a capitalist value. Oh, yeah. And I think it's an interesting reminder is that there may still be those emotions from many family members of people with disabilities, especially when they're newly diagnosed or from the people themselves. And that before the solution was, well, just put away this person, like avoid this person, don't face the quote-unquote problem. And some things have changed. I mean, now it's like people with disabilities are part of our communities and we live with each other. We all live together. But there's also, you know, that aspect that's still the same is some of the emotions that people have about disability still exist. That comes into like the disability culture, which was explained on 22 and 23. And it's the essence of what the outspoken religious people speak up about and then turn around and do the opposite. And then she wrote that uh, Buddhism and kid culture are the closest to disability culture because if you think about it, kids just want to be kids and play with everybody and get along and they don't care if somebody's different. They find ways to include each other and Mm -hmm. the other values are learned values that are taught. No, it's true. I'm going to jump in and read about the kid culture real quick. That's a great segue. This is from the beginning of the book after the introduction, the first chapter. It says, in 1953, I was six. Dwight D. Eisenhower was president. Elizabeth Taylor was a box office star. Jackie Robinson had just recently broken the color line in baseball, and World War II had ended a mere eight years earlier. Elvis Presley had three years to go before his breakthrough on The Ed Sullivan Show. The Dodgers were still in Brooklyn, and much of America celebrating the advent of peace and prosperity, was in the throes of having seven million babies, the baby boom. Less obvious than the general sense of prosperity was the discontent that simmered below the surface among the people living lives segregated from the wealth of post-World War II America, whether African Americans, Latinos, or other minorities. In 1953, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was in the midst of taking its class action suit Brown v. Board of Education in Topeka, to the Supreme Court. Two years later, Rosa Parks would refuse to give up her seat to a white passenger on a Montgomery, Alabama bus. To my parents, the events of the new country were of great interest, and they, along with all the other immigrants of our Brooklyn neighborhood, followed the news closely. I, on the other hand, at six, understood very little of the national news, but from my six-year-old perspective, I could have told you a great deal about what life was like for someone like me. One of nearly 43,000 American children affected by the 1949 polio epidemic, I was a quadriplegic. Though my life wasn't marked with the little whites-only signs that signaled segregation in the South, the life I lived was also a segregated one. Of course, I didn't understand this for a long time, shielded as I was by the love of my family and friends. For me at six, my city block was my whole world, and there was no place I would rather have been. In the summer of 1953, you would have quite likely found me on my way to Arlene's house next door, pushing myself in my manual wheelchair down the sidewalk in tiny increments to get to Arlene's, my journey started with my mother pushing me down the ramp from our house to the sidewalk. Once there, I would grip the rims of my wheelchair tires and inch my way along. 
It would be another 15 years before I would have an electric wheelchair. At that time, a Canadian, George Klein, motivated by the needs of returning World War II veterans, was in the process of inventing the electric wheelchair, but the chair was still four years away from mass production. Because my bout with polio as an infant had left me with very little strength in my arms, moving my manual wheelchair took all my effort. The key to getting to Arlene's and back was a minuscule incline in the sidewalk between our two houses. It was the tiniest incline you can imagine. It would have been invisible to any pedestrian walking by. But I knew that if I could get myself to the top of it, I could then coast down the other side. As I worked my way up the sidewalk, I could hear the radio through our kitchen window, where my little four-year-old brother Joey was eating a cereal with my mother and my baby brother Ricky, my father having left for our butcher shop in the wee hours of the morning. Nearly at the top of the incline, I held my breath as my chair crept up the last infinitesimal rise. The sun got on the back of my head, hair falling over my eyes. Without thinking, I took one hand off the wheel to brush my hair off my face. The wheel, without a stabilizing force of both my hands, slipped, and I rolled all the way back to my original spot. Sighing, I lifted my head and looked around, hopefully. Any kids out yet? I looked for anyone who might be able to give me a little push, but the street was quiet. I took a deep breath, bent my head, and started over. Sometime later, five minutes, ten, thirty, time has a different meaning when you're six. I landed in front of Arlene's stoop and looked at the three steps up to the door. This was the part of the expedition that made me feel awkward. I couldn't get my wheelchair up the steps to ring Arlene's doorbell, which meant I had to sit on the sidewalk in front of her house and yell for her to come out and play. I sat for a few minutes. Arlene's house had a narrow red brick front with white siding on the upper level and a small patch of flowers on a small rectangular lawn. It was just like ours, minus our blue hydrangeas. If the car was in front of the house, I knew the family was home. With any luck, someone would come out and see me. I shifted my gaze to our house. I could hear Uncle Frank, who wasn't our uncle, but we called him uncle anyway, yelling on the other side of Arlene's, but no one came out of the house either. Eyeing Arlene's bedroom window on the second floor, I watched for her shadow. Her white curtains stirred gently in the wind. I glanced up and down the street one last time to see if anyone had come out to play. A bird chirped, flew across the empty street, and landed on the roof. Gathering my courage, I called out, Arlene, can you come out and play? I waited, embarrassed. I had to yell loud, enough that Arlene or her mom or dad or brothers would hear me, and didn't want to yell so loud the whole block would hear me, but nothing. I couldn't hear anyone inside the house. I tried again and yelled a bit louder. Arlene, could you come out and play? I paused and watched the house. Still nothing. I stopped worrying about whether or not the whole block could hear me and hollered. Arlene, I shouted as loudly as I could. Come out and play. You know, so you just imagine like any little kid would just run out the door and run to the other kid's house, jump up the steps, ring the doorbell. But that's because steps are designed for people who run. And, you know, there was no alternative for her. It took her, like, an hour to get somebody's attention. That's just unimaginable, in a way, to me. And also, you know, later in the book, she talks about she wasn't allowed in schools. Her parents did their very, very best to get her into any school they could. And they just kept being told no. And then she got home instruction. Home instruction was two and a half hours a week from a teacher who, like, had to go home instruct a bunch of kids. So, you know, there was this expectation all through her life that she wasn't going to work and wasn't going to go to college. And, you know, any kind of education was like auxiliary for people with disabilities. So it's just very heartbreaking.
Kristen, this is Marty again. I'm curious, and I haven't read the book yet, but I'm struck by the note in the beginning of that reading around the person who invented the mechanized wheelchair, that he was moved by veterans and returning mm -hmm. veterans. In our militarized society, I can imagine that that bond between those that may have permanent disabilities from birth for Judith and her activism being able to build that with the military and the returning vets who have issues. Is that a theme in the book, this idea of the importance of veterans for moving things forward? It's not a large theme, but it's definitely mentioned a few times. You know, for instance, with the sit-ins, there's this idea that she could maybe get veteran support to increase the visibility of things. And actually, there is an incident early, you know, when she's trying to become a teacher, she tries to bring a friend with her who was a veteran because she thought that would give her more weight and people would respect her more. But I was very struck by how much Jimmy Carter and Secretary Califano, who was the Health and Education and Welfare Secretary at the time, and Maldonado in California, didn't really care or didn't want to face this. And I think I've heard this off and on from veterans, like they're supposed to have benefits, but do they actually get them? And how does this work? So I saw it go both ways in the book, for sure. But she definitely wanted to reach out to veterans with disabilities for that reason, for sure. I would imagine that the work moving it forward would have to come with, you know, as veterans sort of walk on water in America, that and Tammy Duckworth, Senator Tammy Duckworth, being a, a veteran who became disabled in mm -hmm. her service. I could see that being the mechanism that finally pushes things forward in a different way. Steve, go ahead. Thank you. It kind of cuts both ways, Marty, I think, because I'm the son of a veteran whose father was in a prison camp for one evening, escaped and got shot in the leg and lost the use of his leg. And, you know, we look at veterans in two different ways sometimes. He wasn't Vietnam, he was Korea, but it was still a different time. It was the 60s, 70s, 80s, and sometimes veterans weren't always presented in the best of light. So I think it kind of works both ways. With that being said, what really has impressed me in doing my own research when Kristen introduced this topic was the bipartisan nature that we had to make these things happen. And it was, I'll even call it nonpartisan in many ways, yeah. which it should be, you know, I mean, there shouldn't be any partisan politics when it's coming to things like this. And when reading about some of these people, I just think there was just so many unsung heroes. Like I was reading about Justin Dart, you know, I was just amazed by how he spent his life. Just incredible. Yeah, Justin Dart and others, there were a lot of key Republicans in that legislation. There's a great sketch somewhere in the book about how much he did for the movement. There's certainly this thanks for your service feeling. I think that there's also occasionally a very misguided thought that, oh, well, they're not useful anymore. Like they've done their service and they can't help us anymore. And, you know, let's forget about those people. So that veterans share a uh, part of the feeling about people with disabilities in general, especially at that time. So Agreed. I think John Stewart does a good job in really trying to put that point of view across. Does anyone else have any thoughts about the book or about Judith Human, ADA, disability? Yeah, this is Marcus again. And another area that really struck me in the book, well, there were quite a few. I found myself getting upset reading this book. On 153, she talked about equality versus equity. 
this area just totally blew me away. Equality is not about treating everyone the same. It's about fairness, the equity of access, the mm -hmm. equity of access for education, food, health care, shelter, everything, jobs and more. And as a society, we fail to differentiate equity versus equality, whereas there are people who think that equality means everybody's on the exact same playing field no matter what. It's like a 100-yard dash with somebody who has no legs going against somebody who has legs. So equality really isn't fair at the end of the day. It's the equity part that makes it fair. She really, I think, hammered that point home quite a bit throughout the book, but she also pointed out that people who ask for equity are deemed difficult or selfish, and it's spun to make them look bad, too. Yeah, it's true. That also has to do with the shift from the medical model to the social model of disability. So she writes just quickly toward the beginning, like it was around that time that my friends and I were starting to differ from our parents in our take on the barriers we faced. Our parents' generation associated disability with President Franklin Roosevelt, who actively hid from the public his paralysis from polio. He never allowed himself to be photographed in his wheelchair or being helped with his mobility. He talked about disability as something for an individual to beat and conquer. We disagreed with this. We did not see our issue as a medical problem that, if we just fixed it, would be fine. We were beginning to see our lack of access as a problem with society, rather than our individual problem. From our perspective, disability was something that could happen to anyone at any time, and frequently did, so it was right for society to design its infrastructure and systems around this fact of life. We had grown up with the civil rights movement. I was eight when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat in the whites-only section of the bus, and just starting college when the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. Wasn't it the government's responsibility to ensure that everyone could participate equally in our society? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's all about equality versus equity and just the idea that we don't all function the same way or need the same things and that we all need to give to society with what, you know, our full potential and in our own ways. So how do we educate people in equity versus equality so that we can make the changes that we need to make that aren't so difficult but need to be mm -hmm. done? Yeah, how do we do that? Well, this is Marty again. And that last quote there really struck me. It's one that I agree with to my core. But I think in terms of government creating a space for everyone to participate equally. But Marcus, your question, I think, is a slightly different one. And that is, I think we're in a moment in our society and with our government specifically where things are not going to move in the mm -hmm. way we want. And certainly not from like big amazing legislation like the ABA or the Civil Rights Act. So where is it going to come from? And I think I have two hypotheses for this. Number one, over the last several generations, the baby boomers have changed society. And as the baby boomers have moved through different stages, they were the first teenagers. So we created a whole teenagedom around them. They were the, the drivers behind civil rights and music and culture. And I mean, just there's so much that this giant group of people have done. And as they age and begin to experience different types of disabilities, I think the market power of that group of people is going to start changing 
and forcing companies and others through just the sheer force of their numbers to make some changes. So that's the first one. And then that leads into the second one, which is, and maybe this is the, the latent libertarian in me, but I do think that it's going to come from the market, from consumerism, from people demanding that accessibility be incorporated into their products and services and employment and other things. And so the awareness and how you use awareness may change. I think it's going to come from those two areas of someone who never had any access or any involvement with someone with any kind of disability. And now they have a parent who's has a stroke or has lost mobility in some way, or is having cognitive issues for the first time or needs support with their vision from a limited vision and things like that. So I think that, and then they're going to be thinking about disability in a whole new way, right? Because now it's part of their life. And then then making those demands on the companies that provide services and consumer goods to say, we need a, a washing machine that has voice recognition and can talk to me, or we need different ways in which fire alarms work so that it's not just auditory, but it's also visual and things like that, that those kinds of things are going to be driven by the market. That's my, the baby boomers and the market are my two main points there. Thanks, Steve, again. Yeah. I kind of like the optimism, Marty. I'm kind of of the camp that I see Gen Z sort of changing it. I just think that their perspective, their point of view, their heart, their knowledge is in the right place. And I just see monumental change coming from that generation. It might require a little more patience, but just the data that I look at, that's where I kind of see. You go on TikTok and you just see their comments and you see the things that they say in this area, very outspoken in your face. And it's not up for debate. <laughs> yeah, I'm really struck by my kids in schools and they go to school with kids of many backgrounds and abilities. And, you know, there's definitely a curiosity about differences. There's an idea of being open to differences and, and that people need more than what we're getting, for sure. Maybe it comes from the old and the young. Like we're all in the middle. We're not, we're not doing enough. We're not doing enough. Gen X is forget you guys. Yeah, forget us. <laughs> I'm not Gen X, by the way. Harper? Thank you, Kristen. Hi, this is Harper. Something that I think is going to be coming down the pike probably later rather than sooner is, at least for my parents, they're not, I don't even want to say technologically fluent. They're not always technologically literate, especially with things that are becoming more and more uh complex and coming out day by day but new disabilities come up over time as you age they grow they're situational they become permanent the generations that are technologically fluent and have grown up with technology now they're going to age and eventually when they find that they are not able to work with and access interact with technology like they used to i think that'll be a big wake-up call of like hey we're used to this. This doesn't work anymore. We need to adapt for us. And that'll just, I don't want to say trickle down, but it'll kind of have a chain reaction of this will affect the younger generation and it'll hopefully become ubiquitous because everyone will realize, oh, this is not going away. In fact, this is coming up for us even sooner, you know, for Generation Z and I believe it's Generation Alpha is the one after that or the, you know, latest generation. So I think it's a, a matter of time. Hopefully it's a little bit sooner than that. 
Yeah, it makes me think about this very traditional American idea of self-reliance and we should be able to take care of ourselves or maybe our families and how against progress that ends up being hard on everybody, not just people who deadlock over legislation, but also, you know, the people who are directly affected, just feeling like I have to take care of this alone, like whatever, I'll just suck it up and not be able to do things. Hopefully we're not heading that way, but... It scares me. So do we want to turn this into a massive generational debate? I think that would be fun. Let's go ahead. <laughs> I'm just joking. This is my no, no, we don't. So Kristen, I guess if I can, as a way of moving us forward here, we only have another couple of minutes. Yeah. You know, what is your one takeaway? Like, as you think about Judith's book here and what her activism meant, is there anything that you really are walking away thinking about? and Is there a specific call to action that she leaves to you and that you would leave to us? Oh, so many, so many things. So I think her call to action is a reminder that people can do more when they do it together. I would say that's the overarching theme throughout this book and It's a wake-up call for me because I am a person who has gone to blindness groups, hasn't really joined in with things that they're doing for a number of reasons. But it's interesting that big groups of people are what really move things in society. We can move things individually with our interactions with people, but on a larger level, it's groups. That's, I would say, her largest call. That's great. Go ahead, David, please. Yeah, I was just going to tag on to that. And it's not just about, you know, having a, a large amount of people, but a variety of people of different roles mm-hmm. and representatives in all facets of life. Like I remember how in her case against the Board of Education, she made it very clear how important it was that the judge for that case was like the first female African-American to become a federal judge in the U.S. And so she was able to very much empathize with humans play. And so that was a kind of a large driving force behind what allowed her to end up winning that case. And she kind of ended up juxtaposing that, I think, later on in the book with an incident at an airline where she was taken off. And so she had gone to court for that. And the judge very much did not empathize with her case, uh, ended up calling her litigious and trying to throw it out. And so it's important to kind of have people empathize and different roles in life so they can end up coming together and understanding these trials and tribulations. Oh yeah, for sure. Just to connect with the empathy idea, I'm going to throw a little quote in. I think it's pretty short. So this is when they're protesting the lack of empathy from government about the a Section 504 of 1973, which had been built under the Ford administration, but hadn't gotten passed. And the Carter administration promised that they would pass it, but then they didn't. And they kept trying to weaken the legislation before they were passing it. So the people with disabilities were protesting and wanting these regulations to be passed the way they were originally written. But here's a cool little quote about the meeting itself. We'd been in the building almost a week, and we were settling into a kind of routine In the morning, the committees would meet, the food committee planned meals, the medication committee compiled a list of needs, and then it's listing these restaurants that would deliver. Also, I mean, it's just kind of amazing that these people were risking their lives literally to protest because of the medications and assistance and things like that. 
In the evening, we'd hold a building-wide meeting to share what we knew of events happening outside the building and our current thinking on strategy. It'd become our practice. The leadership team would hash through an approach, and Kitty and I would then present to the larger group. We continued to maintain our policy of not starting the meetings until every single protester had arrived, and the sign language interpreters were ready to start, and we insisted the meetings not end until every last protester had had a chance to speak. This sometimes meant that our meetings didn't end until three in the morning, partly because some of us struggled with forming words as a result of our disability, and partly because we were dealing with issues we took very seriously. The most remarkable thing about our building-wide meetings wasn't their length, however, but the culture of listening that had developed. No matter how long it took for someone to talk, we listened. Every one of us, now 150 protesters, would listen in a perfect and beautiful silence. Huge, huge. I wanted to allow that moment to linger for a moment. I want to draw us to a close, Kristen. But before I do, Ms. Barker, go ahead. You have your hand. Hi, everyone. This is Emma. Just as you were reading that section, Kristen, it reminded me, and I wanted to mention, I don't think anyone's mentioned this in this call yet, is if you have not seen on Netflix, Crip Camp, it's a documentary that follows like protests through the ADA, but it starts with this camp where a lot of people, including Jewish human, went when they were teens, and it includes scenes from these protests, and it is just incredible. So anyone who hasn't seen it, it's called Crip Camp, C-R-I-P space C-A-M-P, and you can find it on Netflix, maybe other places as well, and it is excellent, strongly recommended. So I just wanted to throw that out there. She really felt the camp was one place where people with disabilities were at home, and they understood each other, the counselors understood them, that was the first aspect of her life, and I love that that documentary has pulled all those things together, the camp and protests and those connections. Yes, for sure. Great recommendation, Emma. It's a very good documentary. I highly recommend it. Well, I don't think that this is going to be the last we discuss the activism of Judith Human and what we can learn from her and others who are part of this. The idea that we are a mission-driven organization, that TAMIN is a mission-driven organization, is important. And I think we've touched on a number of the things that are part of our strategy moving forward. And this is really, I'm speaking now to all of us on this call who are employees, and that is that we are better together. We learn collectively. We share. And these book talks are a big part of that. But so is the things that we share on Slack with each other and guiding each other and pushing each other to be a little bit better every day. And then externally, working with organizations, that is something that we believe very strongly in, that if we're going to move digital accessibility forward and create a more inclusive web and more inclusive world, it cannot be only TAMIN and that we need to engage with partners and other allies, pun intended, to help transform our digital world and by extension, our world in general want people to continue to think about that, that everyone here at Tamman plays an important role in driving all of that forward and making it more equitable world. So with that, thank you everyone for coming and spending your lunch hour with us and spending a little bit of time. Kristen, I can't thank you enough for recommending books, for leading these discussions, for being someone who is bringing so much learning to our community. And I look forward to our next book Lunch and Learn. I also want to thank Marcus Goldman, who is our producer extraordinaire, but so much more than that for helping to create the sound and 
for us to be able to share these discussions with a much broader audience and kind of continue to drive education and awareness forward, but also just someone who has the most inquisitive mind. And I appreciate you jumping in and being a participant, not just staying behind the sound booth as it were. And thank you to everybody for being a part of what we're trying to do. So thanks for another great book, Lunch and Learn, everyone. And we will absolutely see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the book talk about being human, an unrepentant memoir of a disability activist by Judith Human. The producers for Article 19 are Marcus Goldman and Harper Yatvin, and I'm your host, Kristen Waitaki. If you like what you heard today and want to explore more about digital accessibility, technology, our company culture, or anything else, just schedule a time to meet with us. You can find the whole Tamman team at tammaninc.com. That's T-A-M-M-A-N-I-N-C dot com. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter while you're there so you never miss an event or an insight from us. And be sure to rate our podcast five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you catch us. It really helps our podcast grow and reach new audiences. Make sure to follow us, hit that bell icon so you never miss an episode. If social media is more your style, you can also follow us at Tam and Inc. on LinkedIn, Twitter X, Instagram, or Facebook, and share our podcast on your favorite platform. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and being a part of Article 19. Take care.